Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Perilous Chronicle shared the following report about an uprising at a Hawaii prison earlier this month. At least 42 prisoners refused to return to their cells at the end of recreation time and instead caused significant damage to prison infrastructure. The uprising occurred in two pods of the housing unit. Prisoners broke sprinklers, leading to flooding in the pod. The prisoners also started a fire which caused smoke damage in a neighboring pod. According to the police, the uprising lasted three and a half hours and had to be quelled with the use of pepper spray. Two prisoners had to be treated for minor injuries sustained during the disturbance. Three staff members also sustained minor injuries. The head of the public safety department linked the uprising to the efforts of overcrowding. Quote, I'm sure that, generally speaking, overcrowding in the institution was a major contributor, unquote. The conditions of overcrowding and deteriorating infrastructure has been a source of repeated fines and lawsuits in the past. Last year, the state estimated that MCCC was about 60% overcapacity with 301 beds and over 470 prisoners. The executive director of the ACLU of Hawaii said, quote, the specific causes of the disturbance on Maui are so limited in what we can say at this time, but in general, the ACLU of Hawaii has raised concerns for years about unsafe conditions in all our jails and prisons, including significant overcrowding at the Maui Community Correctional Center. That is why we filed a formal complaint about prison and jail conditions in Hawaii with the U.S. Department of Justice in 2017. We will be monitoring the situation as we learn more." Unquote. Three days after the uprising, amidst an ongoing investigation, the Department of Public Safety transferred 21 prisoners, all pretrial detainees, from Maui Community Correctional Facility to the Halawa Correctional Facility. In February 2019, more than 44% of the total population in Hawaii's four jails were pretrial detainees. MCCC was the site of a prisoner protest in April 2018 in which prisoners refused to return to their cells and expressed demands for the improvement of various conditions. Nearly a year later, conditions at the jail remain desperate. Since 1996, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, gave almost $278 million in long-term low-interest loans and grants to build local jails. The funding came from the Community Facilities Direct Loan and Grant Program, operated by the USDA's Rural Development Agency. The program is supposed to assist small rural communities by helping with the purchase, construction, or renovation of critical buildings, such as hospitals, town halls, libraries, and food pantries. It also funds so-called public safety facilities for fire, law enforcement, and corrections departments. North Carolina received the most funding from the program in the last 20 years. Counties in the state received nearly $67 million in loans. The most recent loan, for almost $20 million, went to renovating and expanding a county jail. Today, 731,000, or one-third of incarcerated people, are held in local jails. About 63% of them haven't been convicted of a crime. This week, KiteLine welcomes the contributions of Mark Cook for a second time. Mark is a former prison rebel, dating back to ambitious organizing on the inside in the 1960s. Following his release from prison, he co-founded the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party and later went underground with the George Jackson Brigade. 
Due to his guerrilla activities, he served another quarter century in prison before being released in the year 2000. Since then, he's continued to organize and contribute to the prisoners' movement. This time, Mark speaks about how college classes in prison helped them to organize and talk to one another. As mentioned in his previous KiteLine interview, he was one of several prisoners who constructed a homemade printing press inside, used to make a newsletter that spread agitation. He also talks about the importance of prison newsletters and communication between the inside and outside, how it's the heart of any movement. Mark then moves on to current situations, including Me Too and the current prisoners movement. He also talks a little about the newsletter they recently started prior to last year's national prison strike, called The Kite. We'll have more with Mark next week, and you can hear our previous episodes with Mark on our website. Here he is. Be being a prisoner, I knew the conditions uh, that, that were abusive. I understood them as affecting me. And we talked among ourselves in prison, and we agreed that these were abusive conditions, but how did we, how were we to approach them? Approach them in various ways. In uh, lock, work strikes, uh, lockdown strikes, refusing to work. In my later days in prison, I became a, a panther. I followed another way of uh, dealing with strikes. I, I dealt with it politically. I found that Black Panthers used uh, MLM. Of course, everybody knows Maoist, Leninist, uh, Marx as a, a direction toward uh, struggle within prison. Marx pointed out that you had to have a, a, a voice, a, a written voice, generally leaflets, to, keep, to organize uh, workers to, to motivate them toward changing things, changing and toward. He had to motivate the workers to talk to each other and get on the same page. Okay, that, that was it. Now, in Walla Walla, they did a, a strange thing. They allowed community colleges to come into prisons in early stages. That was one of their mistakes. Because we wouldn't talk to each other, really talk to each other. We all had our gangs and cliques and everything. And everybody's pretty separate. But when they allowed the community college to come into prison, and by the way, I was forced, I either had to go to college or go to the hole. That's what they told me. So I went to college. But in college, uh, they had picked people with the highest IQs they could find in the uh, system to start this program. So we sat in there and we learned with contemporary issues, okay, dealing with things that was happening outside, et cetera. But we started realizing we had contemporary issues inside that need change. So there's a group of us who talked on the yard. First we talked on the yard about our class, you know, what, what we were supposed to learn, things, papers we were supposed to write. Then we started focusing on the prison itself. And we decided that we could, if we get the prisoners together, and, and do strikes or any other actions to change a prison. Uh, that was that's going to be the way to change the prisons. So, as intellectual, I guess that's what you call us, the, the, the smart guys in the school. Anyways, we created an underground newspaper. Okay, within the prison, uh, nobody knew how this thing would be imprinted except the six uh, six prisoners. Okay, black, Chicano, Native American, whites and of course Canadians, <laughs> Canadians, and they were, they were really the, the, the impetus in this thing. Somebody had read, read a, a book uh, uh, on prisoners of war during the Second World War, how they had made these uh, uh, illegal, I mean these documents, so when they escaped they'd have identification papers to continue on with it. So we used that method. It was uh, a matter of using gelatin uh, and 
Well, I'm not going to go through the whole process, but it, it, was, it, was, it, was, a simple, it was a simple process. Yeah, it, it, it really wasn't that complicated once we did it. But we had a, a, a printing press set up in our cells so we could print this newsletter within the prison, communicate with all other prisoners. They, they didn't know who was doing it. They didn't know what our color, what our races was, who, you know, who was actually doing this thing. But we, of course, spoke in the language of prisoners. And eventually we got them all together so they, that being on that same page, we stuck out a slogan for them to follow if, if you want to change things in here. Uh, it said, if you care, grow hair. At that time, nobody is allowed to grow hair. You know, you had to have your hair a quarter of an inch cut short, no facial, no mushes, no, no uh, sideburns, nothing. And so that was kind of the motivation for us to show that we are all together in this strike because they couldn't lock us all up. So everybody started growing this hair. And eventually it got the attention of the, the prison administration. That wasn't the only thing. It was a, a, a racial a strike on racism where uh, conditions were, ex well, it, it got pr pretty heavy. So the, the black prisoners decided we're going to lock down until some of these conditions are changed. And one of them was they wanted to see a movie that had black actors in it. And, and uh, there's white prisoners that didn't want to happen. So the prisoners said, we're going to lock down. Just the black prisoners now. So when they locked down, the other prisoners said, hey, you know, they're fighting for their conditions. Uh, let, let's join them up in the strike. And that's the way they joined up in the strike, as we held that strike. But when the, when the strike was over, the, the warden had asked the so-called leaders to come and tell them what the problems were in prison. The leaders that, that they picked, we call them con bosses. The prison administrators didn't know what they were doing when they did that. They didn't call us con bosses. They just picked people out. And they figured, well, these Everybody understands them, and all the other prisoners will talk and understand these guys. So they picked out the, the black, the Chicanos, and you know, the Native Americans and the whites, who they figured were leaders, so, and say, well, what's the problem? And we started laying out the problems. Olympia told them, well, tell the prisoners to write up a, a, a constitution or something so that they would like the, how the prison to be run. So we, we were able to do this. They didn't know that they had picked the same people who had written this underground newspaper that had gotten all the prisoners together on that same page. We talked about the conditions in prisons, in, in, the, in the prison, uh, and to make it a little entertaining, we talked about the uh, uh, behavior of staff, you know, messing with each other's wives and vice versa, you know, and stuff like that. So that was entertaining. It kept everybody's attention on this thing, to, to the real facts. What we were doing at that time was creating a, 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 a fourth, fourth estate within the prison. And that's the most important thing I found out in all my struggles. I, that's where I began struggles at that time as a uh, prison activist, that you, you had to have a, a fourth estate in order to make this thing work. When, as a panther, okay, we did the same thing. We had the Black Panther paper that had to put Everybody in the nation, all the Black Panthers in the nation, on the same page. There's only one newspaper. And we had our, Huey Newton as the, the center, po center point of what we were trying to do. Now, he had his problems. And you don't have to dis discuss those. But uh, Huey Newton is, was my hero. He was the one that brought us all together for the first time as a, in a political action, using studied uh, uh, political strategies to create what we wanted. When the state wasn't doing something for our, our communities, he said, we'll do it for them. If they won't give us a free clinic, we'll give them free clinics. 
If they won't give us give them food, we'll get food and make sure everybody is make sure all the kids have breakfast. We set up many programs like that. Some of them exist to this day, but we're focusing. As Mao said, you have every struggle is different. You struggle on, on conditions that affect you uh, specifically. Okay, now getting back to prisons, we're studying conditions that ex uh, affect us specifically. As a convict, okay, convicts never disappear. Once you're convicted, that's con uh, you're a convict for life. A lot of people don't, don't find this out until they get out and find out. There's certain things they can't do because they're a convict. They make law after law, barring ex-prisoners as convicts, uh, things they cannot do. One of the first things we did in, in prison was to focus on employment. They're, they're, they're teaching us how to make license plates and stuff that we'd never get a job when we got outside. We said, we want to learn how to do something that we can make some money on when we get out, we'll learn skills that, will, that are beneficial. So again, this small group, we, we wanted to set up a, a project inside that we could work up, learn new skills on. We picked uh, real poultry. The, the warden and the head of the corrections went along with us and they let us have a spot in uh, prison industries where we, we did this. Now this is working on labor. I mean, right now the argument is S slave labor in prisons, I mean, that's going to be the, the, the linchpin to make this thing work, uh, this uh, September strike work. But at, at that point, when I first started being an activist, we started first being activists, we decided we'd start off just teaching the skills. Now, there's two stages. Uh, we, we had somebody who taught us how to do these skills. We worked in prison in industries and gave us a division in there, and we made uh, we were the only ones that had to make a profit for the prison at that time. Okay, later on, we want to take another step. We said, well, we want to have our own prison industry where we pay ourselves wages. I mean, the wages don't, all the money doesn't go to you. It wanted to go to us, too. And we needed a, a place to work. And they had a women's quarters uh, prison there that they had abandoned to build a new prison uh, about 200 miles away. And he said, well, we're not just going to give you a building. You can get couple hundred thousand dollars and we'll let you do that, you guys, ha, ha, ha. Well, we were kind of, kind of sharp, so we did actually raise that money. We went to the uh, Ford Foundation, uh, the LEA grant, there was a, uh, what was it, a Corrections Industries Agency, called it CIA, by the way, <laughs> and got, got a grant from them. We got $250,000, this is six, six of us uh, prisoners, we got the money, will you let us have the program? And this, what they're doing, and they don't know it at the time, they agreed to it, but they gave us our own prison. We picked 12 people and went to this women's quarters where there's no locked doors. We had said you had to have 15 years or more to get into this program. So we set up an upholstery shop there. We had a, a person who would do the, the marketing or the sales. They brought in stuff from uh, all of the Eastern State. So we produced quality work and we got paid. We were paying ourselves. We hired our own staff there. We had one prison guard just to count us every, every day, make sure the cop was there. there was, like I said, none of the doors were locked. If we wanted to run off, we could run off. But we, we told them, we we're going to show them that we could run a, a, not only an industry, but a prison better than them. There were no locked doors in this prison that we set up. So it really wasn't a prison. It was, just, you know, it was a voluntary, we'll just stay there and do this thing. That was a, the second step. 
it was working really well, and I was kind of one of the instigators there, being a you know leader of the Panthers, and I pulled in a lot of Panthers to make this thing work. So they got rid of me. I had a 15 minimum sentence to do. They said, no, we're getting rid of you. So they sent me out of, sent me to Seattle to a halfway house to break this thing up. I stayed at a halfway house for about a year. I got out. I got a job in an upholstery shop, uh, factory out there. So I learned that skill, and I was getting top of each when I got out. So they closed that, the program down, and one of the people who helped me start the program came to me and said, hey, they closed the program down in Walla Walla. I said, well, why? She said, I don't know. But let's, we can buy all that stuff and bring it to Seattle and set up a, a program for convicts, ex-prisoners. He said, but we have to get that same money again. So we wrote a, con wrote a for grants again, got that same money, $250,000. This is back in 1970 about. We got the money. We set up a program in North Seattle where we're doing reupholstery, security, demolition, and mi uh, microfilming. Now, the microfilming, we got a contract from the King County in the state of Washington to do all of the hard copies they had in their files and put it on microfilm. They had, uh, you might have seen some of these things. Well, that was all done by comics, the whole thing. We figured it out how, how to do it, and all those records were copied by us before they started changing over di digital. We started off with $250,000, and that microfilming contract was over $1 million. So we started off way ahead. Everybody we hired were ex-offenders, convicts. What I'm trying to point out here is that it was convicts solved the problem just for a short period of time. But we convinced them. You know, when we took advantage of their ignorance sometimes. When they educated us, that was their ignorance, which allowed us to, allowed the, the con bosses to get together, get the, the rest of the institution together. And we did these step by step by step. So I'm out, I'm out there working now. There was no Me Too movement at that time, but one of our uh, employer, employees was messing with one of the women employees and pretty much just ran his hand up the skirt. And we fired him. But he came back. He had a, a project he was working on when he was with us. He wanted his project, and I told him to get out. That project belongs to us. It's our property. We don't want to ever see you again. Well, he, he put up a fight, so I picked up some shears and uh, ran, ran him out of there, which was... You know, it wasn't exactly a Me Too movement, but I, they said, Mom, you're going to have to resign from this program. You, we can't have that around here. So that was my, the first time I ever stood up for anybody in, in a situation like that. But it, sure, she, she's a woman, but she was uh, one of our employees, and everybody was very efficient in what we were doing. And we, I didn't want nobody messing. You know, we didn't have a union. All we had was convict, kind of a convict code. And he, he had broken that code. Okay, that, that's uh, as far as I got with my, the convict support. Uh, but one more step we, we took. I became, in, as a Panther, I came involved with a group by the George Jackson Brigade. Okay, now what happened was prisoners in, in Walla Walla, after I had gotten out, and after I got out, yeah, I, I started a group called Convention where I was doing a forum uh, for prisoners uh, every year, one, one forum every year, and we drew people not only from uh, this state and local area, but they came in from other states to go to come to this thing. And we had the, what you call it, professionals come in, like the head of the law, head of the law school in University of Washington, uh, uh, radio commentators had their little radio, radio shows and, and television shows. They came and, and spoke at this thing. And one person came in, this is, we did about 
three of these things. And one person came in and it was kind of disruptive. Oh, here's a communist. I'm telling you. Oh, here's a communist. He wanted to talk about we're all bourgeois. We didn't know what he was doing. And he's kind of interrupting the program. I said, wait a minute. You know, we've got a program running here. I'll give you time to speak. Just give us a chance to get this program going. Everybody listen to me. So uh, this guy, his name was Ed Mead. Okay. Yeah, Ed, that's one of my first introductions to Ed Mead. And we became buddies after a while. But he spoke, everybody listened to him, and they just didn't understand. Okay, so we, he had his own program as a uh, running the prisoner's union, and he had uh, got card-carrying members of the prisoner's union out of Monroe. This is a uh, prison here in the state of Washington. I think it was about almost 90% of the prisoners were card-carrying members of the prisoner's union. Okay, I helped him a little bit. He had a news, newspaper called the, the uh, Sunfighter. Again, it's a fourth press, and that's important. So they got a strike going on in Walla Walla. Uh, some of the prisoners. And it gets pretty violent. The guys, they're striking because there's been uh, abuse of the prisoners, not only in solitary confinement, but throughout the prison. And they're trying to uh, do their, it started off with kind of gentle persuasion like we do on the street walking with their signs. But it got down to where they, they did a riot, but they still weren't getting anything done. So the, the, uh, Ed Mead had a group that he's gone, these are it's an underground group. And they were ex extremists, you know. Well, I'm still into general persuasion kind of stuff, and it's working. Uh, but he's, he's kind of into extreme activities. Now, how extreme do you, was this? They, were needed, they asked for a little funds. They were doing some bombings here and there, and I wasn't understanding what they were doing. But they using, started using the name of the George Jackson Brigade. I'm a Panther. George Jackson was a film author of the Black Panthers. And there's going to be any soldiers on the streets using his name. We want to know what they were doing. We didn't know what they were doing. So the people in, in Oakland asked, asked me to look into this and find out what they were doing if I could. So I gave them some money. They bought them some guns, you know, and <laughs> to kind of help, help them along. But anyway, we're talking about the, the strike that happened in Walla Walla, and these guys showed up. And eventually what they did, they bombed the Department of Corrections in the state of Washington, the, uh, the office when nobody was there after hours, with a, what they call a communique explaining why they did it because of what was happening in Walla Walla. And at that time, these communications were read in full by the news media. They, they published it in newspapers, Seattle Times and Post, and on the radios. And this happened regularly. But in this instance, what happened, it changed what happened in Walla Walla. The warden got fired. Some of the other guys got changed to other locations, and conditions improved immediately. Now, again, were ex-convicts working for convicts in, inside. And it's an experience that I've learned while doing activism that you have to get the people who are suffering the abuse to be involved. Black, Black Lives Matter is workable because the conditions are bad for one black person, it affects everybody else. And they, so they're, they're representing themselves. They're not just representing that person that got shot and killed, they're representing themselves. And it's, it's the same thing with the, the Me Too movement. The majority of the Me Too movement who are, who are stand-up people are people who have been abused. And when one person is abused, everybody can stand up for them. It's a Maoist theory that you have to deal with the conditions that hurt you directly. Not something all, all often, and, you know, it's, it's great to try and fight imperialism about what, what Americans are doing to people in Iraq or Iran or something like that. But we have to worry about what's happening here in this country if we're working as a, as a huge movement. Dealing with the, the prison movement that's happening right now, we have to get people who are ex-convicts involved also. 
We, and, but first of all, we have to get the prisoners to talk to themselves, and that's where we're doing these, these things. It's called a kite. Uh, we helped with the uh, California strike, prisoner strike. They did a hunger strike because they were in solitary confinement. They couldn't do a work strike because they weren't doing no work. But they convinced everybody in solitary confinement to go, go on strike. Then they asked for people in the population to support that strike, doing the same thing. Not only did the people in the pop, general population go on hunger strike, they also went on work strikes. This lasted for about three years. And in that three-year period, we put out a newsletter called The Rock. And in The Rock, it was made up of analysis by the prisoners themselves of, of why they needed uh, this strike, uh, how it was affecting the prison, and eventually they had a breakdown and, and you know, help them with the conditions of solitary confinement. There were people in solitary confinement for up to 30 years, maybe longer, who their families had never seen them or even seen a, a, a photograph of them. Uh, there were small things they wanted, just like in, in the wintertime, they wanted a little bean. They wanted a calendar. They didn't have calendars down there. All the time they do, they have to make their own calendars. But it was small stuff to start off with. And then they said, no, we're going to just shut this thing down and get all of the conditions changed as much as we can. When we started doing the rock, they sent us their stamps. Uh, prisoners are generally given uh, stamped envelopes or stamps to communicate with their families and friends. But a lot of them didn't have families and friends, but they, we could produce this thing for them. We produced it. They sent us the stamps. Then they started sending us cash. Their, their uh, supporters, their families and friends were sending us cash. So they were paying for this totally. Only thing we paid for, we had our computers and our printers, but they paid it for the cartridges, for the paper that was used, for the stamps. So we printed what they told us to print and sent it into them and circulated in all the prisons. Although there were, we only had around 600 uh, subscribers, it reached everybody, it's similar to the what happened in Walla Walla when we did the underground newspaper we called The Bomb. Okay, we only reached 20% of the population. That's all we could do. But that thing circulated so broadly, everybody read it. And that's the, real, the true importance of, of zines, you know, uh, of the press, the, the fourth estate. People look at it as just being bothersome. I mean, sure, sometimes you have to uh, take with a grain of salt of what you're reading. But that is the heart of any movement. That's the main way, way you can get into prison. They don't have social media. They don't have, you know, they don't have social media, which gets a lot of our movements on the streets going. Sure, some of their supporters get it, and they try and communicate to the prisoners what's going on. So we've chosen the kite, this newsletter that we're putting out. It's to be written by prisoners uh, and ex-prisoners and supporters. We're, we're letting some of the supporters write articles too, you know. But, but mostly it's prisoners talking to prisoners. When I write, I put in a subject that I want them to discuss, to talk among themselves and, and discuss, because they're mo we're moving toward this uh, strike, and they want, we, we want them to know what the strike is about. The first issue is always communication, and that is a human right, and we put it on every newsletter we set in there. We did it on The Rock, and we're doing it on this thing, too. It's communication is a human right, and when we're talking about Slavery, we're saying that wage labor is a human right. We're sticking that in too, and it is. When you look worldwide, if somebody's you know, doing any kind of work, they're entitled to compensation. Uh, we're having problems uh, with unions now where unions aren't really speaking as strongly as they should 
in support of other workers. The Supreme Court has ruled that if you're a, uh, uh, a public worker, you don't have to pay union dues, if, even though your shop is a union shop, but you get the same benefits. Okay, that's, that was a bad decision, but it's a right-wing decision, and that's what we get you know, for voting certain people in. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.